Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace and the mercy and the invitation that you have offered for us in this word. Help us, Lord, to respond and to come to you. Bless us, Lord, as we open up this word Lord, you know that I am weak and sinful, and I am just an instrument. Lord, I pray that I might be an instrument in your hands, that you would help me, Lord, to be used to convict and convert by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to direct your attention this morning back to this passage here in Revelation 22, particularly verses 6 and onwards. I don't know about you, but I don't know what you think about endings, but a lot of the time, I'm not very excited about them. I don't like things coming to an end. I don't enjoy them because they usually mean some kind of uncomfortable transition to something that's not familiar 
or may even be worse than our current situation. For example, if you've been really enjoying a TV series only to find out that there's no more episodes or worse, that they stop production in the middle of all of these plot lines and everything else is very disappointing. Even as some of us look forward to the end of the restrictions and the various stages of lockdown that we're operating under. And yet the question is, what is to come? Some churches have begun to reopen. And I learned from one of my fellow pastors this week that, that he was told by public health that we're not even allowed to sing corporately yet. And it's just like, what is, what is to come in this new change? And I think for a lot of people, sometimes when they think about heaven and they think about what is to come, it's such a massive difference and it's such a massive change that we struggle to relate or to understand. Endings can be upsetting, they can be disappointing, and they can be frustrating. But they can also be the beginning of something far better. While the end of the COVID-19 crisis does not promise this, I can say that revelation does. At least to those of us this morning that are believers in Jesus Christ, the end of this world is a wonderful thing because it is the beginning of a renewed heavens and earth. We've come this morning to an end. We've come to the end of our series in Revelation. This is our fifth sermon and final sermon of this series, this little mini-series that we've been doing in Revelation chapter 21 and in Revelation chapter 22. And we've titled it, A View to the End to Help Us in the Middle. Because one of the things we've recognized and we've stated over and over again is that if we know what's to come, we can certainly bear what is in front of us. If we know that there is the assurance and the wonder and the joy of heaven, there is really nothing that can harm us on earth. And Jesus indeed reminds us of this. He says, why do you fear those who can destroy the body? Fear him who can destroy the body and the soul. Meaning that this life may be miserable and may have its outbreaks and its diseases and its quarantines and its expressions of hatred and injustice. But there is coming a place where there are no tears, where the curse is reversed, where there is no sin and where there is the presence of God eternally. And understanding that, and understanding that because of the curse of sin, we will struggle all of this time, it gives us a yearning for what is to come. And it helps us to act rightly and justly and kindly and graciously to pour out the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the goodness, the self-control that are the fruits of the Spirit. It helps us in the present, in the middle of all of it. I hope that you have enjoyed, if you've been following with us, our tour in Revelation 21 and 22. More importantly, I hope that your end of life and existence here on earth will mean a new beginning with God eternally in his presence and not under his wrath. For as we've said all along, there are but two endings to our current situation, ultimately. There is either heaven or hell. And we have sought in this series to hold out to you a view of heaven, to encourage you who are believers to persevere, and also to warn and entice those of you who are unsure or unbelieving, to embrace the bad news. Notice I said the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners, that humanity is not our salvation, that our salvation comes from God. To embrace the fact that we are sinners and that we are hopeless, that we are in the pit of despair, but that we have the good news as well. That is a savior who came down and who took on flesh, who bore the wrath of God for sin, that if we believe in him, we can be forgiven and not perish, but have eternal life.
But again, everything is coming to an end sooner or later for some of us. And the greatest question that we have to answer is what is to come next for me? The visions of heaven that we have been examining over the past few weeks, seeing the newness of heaven, the beauty and the purity of heaven, and the great gift of the presence of God symbolized by the tree of life and the river of life, come to an end in verse 5 of chapter 22. What remains before us in the final verses of the Bible contain an important promise, a series of exhortations, and a wonderful confirmation. And those are the headings by which we're going to unpack these final verses in the book of Revelation. Beginning at verse 6, we're going to look at a promise. And then in verse 7 and forward, we'll see an exhortation. And then finally, a confirmation from God himself. So first of all, we begin in verse 6 with a glorious, true promise. Look at what he says. He says, and he said to me, this is the angel, saying to the apostle John, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, this is a wonderful and a glorious promise because it comes after this glorious symbolic picture that we've seen laid out for us of the new heavens and the new earth. We've seen it in chapter 21, but specifically in the immediate context in verses 1 to 5, we've seen it very vividly described as this wonderful city, this wonderful garden city that has come down where the dwelling of God is with men, where there is no sin, where there is a reversal of the curse. It's a new Eden, a better Eden, and it is in the presence eternally of God. And this statement here in verse 6 is meant to underline, to star, to highlight everything that we've just read and heard over the last number of weeks. Now, and, and, and the point here is that now that the, the book of Revelation has been revealed, he wants us to know that everything in it is absolutely trustworthy and true. And it's important for us to see that the foundation for it to be trustworthy and true is expressed. He goes on to say that it's because the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, has sent his angel to show it. In other words, the Bible doesn't just describe things, it asserts itself as an authority. This is what it will be like. Why? Because God sent his angel to show you what it's like, so that it can be witnessed, so that it can be known. No eye has seen, no mind can understand, but God has revealed it by his spirit. And this is what his word exists to do, is to reveal himself to us. Our God is fundamentally a relational God. He wants to know us. In fact, he does know us, but he wants us to know him. He wants us to enter into relationship. And he doesn't just lay out for us a series of moral commands and says, do this. But he gives us a broader, a wider picture. It is not the picture that we see in Islam, which is just submit. No. We are called to submit to God's laws, but we are given the rationale. We're given the picture. He shows us his love. We love because he first loved us. And he is a noble God in a way that Allah in Islam is not noble because he has revealed himself. He has shown himself to be the God that he truly is. He's revealed this true, this truth. And it's not a possible ending. It is the end that is being shown for us. And because it's from God, because he sent his angel to, to proclaim it to John and then to record it and to give it to us, we would be foolish to ignore it. And this theme of witnessing or bearing witness or being an eyewitness is all throughout the book of Revelation. We have not done a full exposition of the whole book, 
But if we were, this is something that we would pull out as we look throughout it. It begins way back in chapter one of Revelation. And it, it, it talks about this theme of, of bearing witness or witnessing to the truth. It's all there. And it begins with Jesus Christ himself back in chapter one of Revelation, where he is described as the preeminent witness. Revelation 1 verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So it starts with the witness of Jesus Christ. There's no greater witness. And Jesus truly is the hope of all glory. In him, in Jesus, are all of the promises of God brought to their fulfillment. Jesus is the end, the telos, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is everything. Right? And he says it in his own ministry when he, he, he walks with the, the disciples in the road to Emmaus. He says, the law, the prophets, the wisdom, all of that is about me. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the means of God's grace. And Jesus is our ticket, ultimately, into heaven. It's not the church. It's not baptism. It's Jesus himself and his work. And he is a witness of all that happens. He's described in the scriptures as being the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the only one who has died never to die again. He is the only truly resurrected one. And he is a witness of what will come for us. But witness isn't just in Jesus Christ in Revelation. John is the consummate eyewitness. He's the, the communication of that witness. In Revelation 1, verse 2 to 3, he is the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Right? This is, this is John's role as an apostle. He is not just a recorder, but an eyewitness. Remember in 1 John, he says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, right? these things we proclaim to you. That's what he's doing here. But the witness aspect is not just limited to Jesus and to John. We are called to be witnesses of this, especially as we face suffering. Because you remember that the book of Revelation was not meant to be just a, a book that people argued about and prognosticated about. It was actually a very practical book. And the people who received it didn't have the same struggles with the apocalyptic language and imagery that we do. They understood what it was trying to convey. It was trying to convey hope in the midst of suffering. And the expectation is that as they were going through suffering, this would strengthen them and that they themselves would be a witness. It's part of the, the task. So it's not just Jesus as the, the first fruits uh, and, and the pre preeminent witness. It's not just John recording it and giving it to us. It's meant to encourage us so that we can also be witnesses. Look at Revelation 2 verse 10. It says this. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is the warning. John knows that his people are going to suffer. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So this is a prophecy that he's making to the church. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's a promise that comes. And that means that our hope for justice, our hope for fulfillment, our hope for happiness isn't entirely bound up in this world. It's not to say that there's not, we're not supposed to advocate as salt and light for justice, for peace, for, for, for happiness in our lives. It's not wrong to pursue happiness in our lives, but it's wrong for us to assume that that is accomplishable without a reversal of the curse. We need to recognize the limits 
of what is possible in this world and, and to understand that we live not for this world, but for the one that is to come. And that living for heaven will make us of earthly good because we will seek to image and reflect the perfection of God's grace and his mercy and his love. And as we more and more come into relationship with God, it will expose more and more of our sin and enable us to repent and to reconcile and to work through the mess and the muck of this life. But we must be well aware that there will continue to be sin. There will continue to be pestilence. There will continue to be wickedness perpetrated. Jesus himself said that even with respect to poverty, that the poor will always be with us, at least in this time. But our hope, our hope is ultimately in the work of God coming into the lives of individuals, coming, helping them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and with new hearts, anything is truly possible. So this is the focus of what the church is about is to bear witness through our lives and through our words and through the testimony of the scriptures. That even as we face rejection and suffering in our own lives, we can point to the God who sent his son to transcend, to suffer for us, that we might be brought into a saving relationship with him. And it's important for us to understand that the way that we live and the way that we move, and the way that we interact with the sin and the muck and the mire around us gives testimony. The way that we die, even, is important. The great church father, Tertullian, is famous for coining the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he was talking about was, as people in Roman times were shown the deaths of Christians, thousands of Christians put in before the lions, or lit up as torches at Nero's parties. They saw how Christians lived and died and would not submit. If, if God was not real, you'd be the fool. <laughs> you'd be a fool to give up your life for him. It would be much easier to just bend the, the, the knee to the emperor. Much easier to do that. And why wouldn't you do that? Well, the only reason why you wouldn't do that is because you believe in something that is greater. And that's powerful. And that's a threat. And our society sees that as a threat. Many people want to live for their own desires and their own freedoms and their own identities. We have to recognize that we are not our own, that we have an identity in Christ Jesus that supersedes every other identity. And in fact, it forces our identities to submit to it. And that identity is that of Christian. If you are a believer, you are a believer and a Christian before you are anything else. And everything else that is about you, your cultural background, your likes and dislikes, whatever it is, all of that is subsumed in your identity to Jesus Christ because he is our first and our last. So we need to understand that how we live and how we suffer is a reflection. It reflects what we believe. It reflects on who we believe in. And we're called to be witnesses. Jesus was the preeminent witness. John witnessed these things and gave them to us to help us, to encourage us, so that we might suffer. And this is the reality of being a Christian. It is not uh, health, wealth, and prosperity. That's a false gospel. In fact, Jesus very clearly says that in this world, we will have suffering. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, why would you want to do that? Fundamentally, because it's worth it. Because eternity is at stake. Because the peace of God surpasses all human understanding and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and helps us through the ups and the downs of this world. And there are a lot of downs. And there are a lot of challenges, but the grace of God is sufficient for us. But the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that these statements about God and about his world and about the future and about heaven 
and about hell and about justice and about righteousness and about sin? Do you believe that these are true? That's the question. Now, many of us would say, oh, of course, of course, they are trustworthy and true. But don't be too hasty to trip over yourself in saying that you agree that this book of Revelation, that this Bible is true. Because while we have a wonderful vision of heaven in Revelation, we also have a very clear depiction of the devil, his demons, the lake of fire known as hell. Just as we have the city of Jerusalem, we also have the city of Babylon clearly depicted. And we have a hell that is real and that burns eternally under the wrath of God for those who rebel against him, either passively or aggressively. Let me, let me be clear about that. When I say we can rebel passively or aggressively, rebellion, as we've seen in our studies in uh, the, the story of the prodigal son, is not just about the prodigal son aggressively rejecting the father, thumbing his nose at God and rejecting God's ways and going his own way. Rebellion is also passive as well. It's the elder son living passively within the rules, going to church, working hard, but not really submitting to God truly in his heart. The elder son's relationship with God is like many professing Christians. It's transactional. He's doing what he thinks earns himself a place in heaven. He doesn't understand that he's actually just as rebellious and lost as his younger brother. That he needs to be rescued by the father because he's got his own debt that he can't repay. And that debt is the debt of sin. See, we need to understand that. Do you understand that? Do you understand your sin debt? Do you know and believe both in the glorious reality of heaven and the terrifying reality of hell? Because you cannot have the good news without the bad news. Because you won't understand the gospel. If you don't understand sin and hell, you're not going to understand the cross and heaven. Because the reality is Jesus Christ came into the world, not out of his own amusement, but out of necessity, because our sins necessitated him to come, to live a perfect life, and to die a perfect death, that only and only if we believe in him, we will have eternal life, not in our goodness, not in our, our, our regular attendance at church, not in our, our regular, regular good deeds that we do, that we're just a, generally a good guy. No, it's only in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Anything else is insufficient for the God who is, as we sung, holy, holy, holy. So do you know that this word is trustworthy and true? Do you know this Jesus Christ? Do you trust in him? Does he direct your, and control your thinking and your actions? Do you feel his spirit at work within you to will and to work for his good and his glory, not just your good and your glory? Well, this is a wonderful promise because what he's giving us is a foundation. This vision of heaven is trustworthy and true. And if you know that and you believe in the promise that the word is trustworthy and true, then that Jesus is the eternal God, then you will also believe and respond to the exhortation that we see in verse 7, where he says, Blessed is you who keep the prophecy, the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is a really important thing that we will see. And we'll see it again tonight when we look at prayer. But we need to understand that belief in God is grounded in activity, is grounded in action. Faith and action work together. <clears throat> when we understand that if you believe something, you will act upon it. 
If you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven, it will have a direct effect on you. You will reject everything else. Every other means of fulfillment and salvation will not be enough for you. You will reject all other idols. And this is the injunction, this is the exhortation that is brought to John in verse 8. Look at what happens. He said to me, this is the angel, said to John, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels to show I'm sorry, I, I did not read that. It's verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He's giving testimony. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. We need to understand What's going on here? John, who had been overwhelmed as he had seen this vision and this beauty and this angel, fell down to worship the angel. But the angel rebukes him and says that he's just a servant, that he needs to worship God, not anything else, not even a glorious and a wonderful angel, angelic being. I, I don't know if any of us have ever been in the presence of angels, but I imagine that it's overwhelming as we see the, the, the encounters throughout the scriptures. We see people cry out in terror and fear because of the wonder of them. And so you can sort of understand why John would worship this heavenly being. And his rebuke is, no, you must worship God. Now, some of you might be saying to yourselves, well, I'm not superstitious. I'm not actively worshiping angels or some, anything else. I'm not, idol I'm not an idolater. But let me ask you, is that really true? What about how you choose to perhaps prioritize your work or your schoolwork? How do you feel about setting aside Time, a whole day, to worship God on Sunday. Twice, seriously, twice on Sunday. Don't we need to prioritize sleep? Don't we need to prioritize some of these other things that are important on Sunday? Do we, do we really need to prioritize worship in that way? Who or what are you actually worshiping? When your children say to you, Dad, I don't want to go to church. That they find church boring. And you decide, you know what, I don't want to fight that battle anymore. Who are you actually worshiping in that situation? Are you worshiping God or your children? Or perhaps when you do a little questionable thing. If you just ignore the rules or or bend them just a little bit, a little white lie, a little here and there. Whose law are you obeying? God's or your own? And if you're dismissing God's law, you're surely not worshiping him. You're surely not respecting him. You're surely not obeying him. You see, John's idolatry here is clear. Ours can be more subtle, but it is no less dangerous. And we need this injunction to worship God. Not man, not our employer, not our leisure, not our personalities, not, not anything else, but God himself. God must come first. His identity and our identity in him as servants we're fellow servants with the angels, must be preeminent before everything else. Again, the angel is a powerful being, a wonderful being, a heavenly being. John bows to worship him, but he says, no, don't do that. Worship God. Much of the New Testament is warning us of idolatry and sin. The idols that creep into our hearts 
John Calvin's famous for saying that our heart is a continuous idol factory. As soon as we address one, another one pops up. And the only way to address it ultimately is to make our heart anew through the power of the Holy Spirit and to discipline our hearts and our minds to fix our eyes upon Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to think through our lives and to prioritize our lives in terms of what he has done and what would please him, not so much what would please us or our spouse or our children, what would most please or glorify him. Now, as we read through this this passage, there are a number of things that sort of pop out at us. One is something that is repeated in this exhortation, and it is repeats itself in verse 7, in verse 12, and verse 20. And it's an exhortation that Jesus utters. And he says, behold, I am coming soon. Soon. Now, this is meant to encourage us to be watchful over our hearts. And it's the foundation for many of the other exhortations that are here in this passage. But not to state the obvious, but this exhortation was, was expressed before John 2,000 years ago. And that's soon? What's going on here? The soon implies that the second coming could have happened within John's lifetime. In fact, a number of New Testament writers, including the Apostle Paul, expected that it might come in his own lifetime. You say, well, there, there you go. You know, this authoritative and true Bible, yeah, it's, it's, it's an old one. Yeah, it's not something that we should be paying attention to. It's 2020. It's 2,000 years later, it's still soon? Come on. Seriously? Really? What does this mean? This has troubled people for many years, and they've gone through all sorts of gymnastics uh, and, and historical arguments. But I think the answer to it is actually fairly simple if we look at the scriptures themselves. For example, we need to understand, first of all, that the perspective of time from God's perspective is different than it is from ours. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So 2,000 years, two days. Doesn't seem that long, does it? That's how time is described to us from God's perspective. But what does he mean when he says this word, soon? Well, we need to understand this in relation to covenant theology. We need to understand that in the New Testament, we have the inauguration of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that we are in a new age. It is what Hebrews calls the last days. This is how the book of Hebrews begins. In Hebrews 1 verse 1, it says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Do you notice what marks the change to the last days? It's the son who is appointed heir of all things. Well, when did that occur? Well, that actually occurred in history. It occurred at his triumphant victory over sin and death in the grave and his ascension to the right hand of God, where he rules and reigns and where he brings the captives up in his train. That is where everything changed. Everything in all of human history before that, from the fall of Adam and Eve to the cross of Christ, was anticipating the work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, which was significant in that it, 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 uh, it, it bore the wrath, but even more significant than that, that the resurrection, because it showed the triumph over death, that the curse could be reversed, that the curse of death could be reversed. And not only that, that it would be ascended and reign, and that promise of a new heavens and a new earth and a return to a new Eden, all of that was bound up in this. That is the beginning of the end. 
That is the beginning of the end. In, in former times, they talked to us by prophets. Now he's spoken to us by his son. And we have Jesus coming and giving us the fulfillment of all things and saying that he would send the spirit and the spirit is poured out at Pentecost. This is the beginning of the end. Hebrews 9, 26 calls this time the end of the ages, which began at the cross. It says, he has appeared once for all, this is Jesus, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So these last days began at Pentecost, as was prophesied in the book of Joel, and as it came to fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, where it says, and in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This happened at Pentecost with the, with the, 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 the wind rushing, and the, the tongues of fire, and, and the proclamation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so because the Holy Spirit has come, because the Son has come and has triumphed over the grave and ascended to, into heaven, that means that we are in the last day. And this is confirmed further by the context here in Revelation chapter 22. Look at what he says in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. They're saying, well, what, what does that mean? Well, again, one of the challenges we have sometimes when we read uh, Revelation is that it needs to be read in the light of the Old Testament prophecies because it is fulfilling and indeed signaling to us a new age. And what we see here is that John is told to do exactly what Daniel in the Old Testament was told not to do. John is told, don't seal it up. Daniel is told to seal it up. Daniel in chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And again, we're seeing the transition from Old Testament. What is hidden in the Old Testament is brought to revelation in the New Testament. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Augustine said that. And what we see in, in Daniel is, and in, in Ezekiel, we see visions of the end. But they're not fully understandable. There's more that needs to be revealed, more that needs to be shown. And that revelation, the ultimate, the consummate revelation is Jesus Christ. And so John is saying he's coming soon because his revelation is complete. All of God's prophecies, all the Old Testament prophets find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And he's come and we know him. We've seen him. God's promises have come true. The Old Testament is true. So we can anticipate and we can expect Jesus to come at any time. And so this is why believers in the New Testament, whether they live in the New Testament era, and we would include ourselves, those who live in the last days, whether we live in AD 90, as those who were receiving this likely did, or even before it, or in 2020, or 1990, or 2090, or 3090, it applies to all of us. Because we've been warned that the Lord could come at any time. Jesus talks about this himself on several occasions in the Gospel of Mark and in Luke. In Mark 13, for example, he says, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what shall I say to you all? Stay awake. So let me ask you, are you awake? Are you watchful? Because Jesus may come. He may come in your lifetime. He may come tomorrow, and he may come today, and he may come a thousand years from now. But he will come. But even if he doesn't come in your lifetime, we will come before him. 
Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You see, not everyone goes to heaven. Verse 15 tells us this, right? Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And before you say, well, I'm not that, remember, adulterers involve the mind. If you've, Jesus says, if you've thought lustfully in your heart towards a woman or a man or any, anybody else, then you are an adulterer. And in case you haven't gone out and stabbed anybody or shot anybody, if you hate someone in your heart, Jesus says that's as good, right? And by the way, idolaters is catch-all, right? All of the sins. All of us deserve the penalty and the wrath. All of us deserve to be outside of heaven. So what do we do? Well, again, even as we look at verse 15, we have to look at verse 14. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by its gates. And then it goes on to say, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What does it mean? Well, fundamentally, it means we cannot be passive. We must wash our robes. What does that mean? Is he advocating some sort of salvation by good works? No, of course not. Our hope is not in our righteousness. Our hope is in Christ and his righteousness. How do we do this? By faith, right? We do this by faith. And what is faith? Faith is a gift that God himself gives us. We wash all our guilty stains in Christ's blood. And we clothe ourselves with Christ's righteousness. This is even here within the context. Look at verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying he is the Messiah who came to save. The morning star is uh, a, a messianic title, just as the, the offspring of David is the messianic title. So through Jesus Christ, there is salvation. And it is through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit that we are drawn to him. Through Christ, the invitation comes to us through the Spirit speaking through the church, through the bride. Look at what it says in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You see, the role of the church is to invite, to bear witness, to invite, come, come. Come, not in your own strength but come with the robes of Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness. Bold, I approach the throne of grace. How? Clothed in the robes of Jesus, washed in his blood. What does it mean to become a Christian? What it fundamentally means to become a Christian is to look away from yourself and to look to Jesus Christ. That's really the simplicity of it. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate the gospel. But fundamentally, the gospel is looking to Christ. Some of you have heard of the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. When he was 16 years old, and unconverted and miserable and wanting to be converted. He went through over a year of depression and misery. And one winter morning, 
he went to a Methodist chapel. He couldn't get very far because it was snowing. And there were 15 people in the church. And it so happened that the preacher couldn't make it. So someone stepped up in the congregation, a layman who was a shoemaker actually, opened up the scriptures. And he took his text from Isaiah 45, verse 22, which, where it says, Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And since Spurgeon sort of stood out, since he wasn't a regular, you can imagine coming in. I mean, we have a small church, but <laughs> this was a very small church where they knew each other, and they were all looking at him. And this, this preacher didn't hesitate to look at him. And he, at one point, he looked right at Spurgeon, the boy, and he said, Young man! Look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And that's basically the one point of his sermon was look to Jesus Christ. That's all he knew. But it was enough. It was enough. Spurgeon said this. He said, I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as when the bronze serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun. Why well, say the same thing to you? Maybe you've been a child growing up in a Christian home and you've been expecting that you have to do 50 things. Or maybe you've wrecked your life and you've come and you've connected with our church over cyberspace and you're in a situation where you think there's just no hope for me. I have to, what do I have to do to be saved? Very simply, look. Look. Jesus Christ. Believe and trust in him. Confess him. Live for him. Glorify, enjoy him, but look to him. Cry out to him. Believe in Jesus. Believe in his work and you will not perish. If you're thirsty for something more, it's nothing, it's not just enough to add a little something, something, a little, you know, aperitif to your life. No. It is drinking from the river of life that flows and overwhelms. And, and indeed, it, it, it's not adding to your life source. It's replacing your life source. It is drinking in of Jesus and his hope and his glory and his mercy, believing his promises seeing yourself in John 3:16 God so loved Christopher that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes that if Christopher believes in him he will not perish but have eternal life a friend of mine came to faith just substituting the generals for the specific and he started to realize the beauty of God and his gospel have you realized that Look to Jesus. You see, the way we respond is clear. Look at verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What does this mean when he says that? But well, we need to understand how God works things out in his sovereignty and his covenants. You see, the reality is that even as you hear this message, something is going on in your heart. You will either respond to this message this morning, this call, this invitation to come with belief and trust, or you will continue actively or passively rebelling. 
which is it going to be for you? Are you the unredeemed prodigal who has rebelled against God and says, this isn't for me? Click, it's over. I'm out of here. Or are you the elder brother who's like, okay, yeah, I attended. I was there. But then ignore the injunction. Do not look to Christ. You look to yourself, look to your works, look to whatever it is that makes you feel good about yourself. What are you looking to? The prodigal who actively rebelled was saved. The father ran out and grabbed him and gave him a new robe and a ring and brought him into his home. And he believed. This is the mercy of God. No matter what you have done and where you have been, there is hope through Jesus Christ. His work on the cross saves us from ourselves, from our wickedness, from our emptiness. And he gives us new meaning and new identities as servants of him. Are you a glorious failure? If you are, in your own strength, you can be strengthened and redeemed by a gracious Savior. But if you're trying to impress other people with your religiosity and with your turn of heart, you've missed the boat. Look to Jesus. Take your confidence and your security in Jesus Christ and his spirit. And the assurance of faith that is not possible in any other religion, but is possible in Christianity because of the testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit will testify with your heart that you yourself are a believer. And those who respond in faith are given this promise that the blessings will continue forever. But those who respond antagonistically to this message, either actively or passively by ignoring it or rejecting it outright, they will also continue in that condition forever and ever. That's what verse 11 is saying, that the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still do holy. You see, we believe that God is sovereign. but We also believe that there is an aspect of human responsibility. There is a sense in which the consequences of unbelief are the product of one's own choice. You heard me correctly. In our human responsibility. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, a man can't be taken to hell or sent to hell. You can only get to hell under your own steam. Or as he put it in another place, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Do you revel in your rebellion? Or are you sick of it? Don't wallow in it. Don't delight in it. There will be pleasure in sin. The Bible is very clear, but it is a fleeting pleasure. Our lives are like mists. It will never satisfy you. It will never overwhelm you like the glory of God shining in the temple, in the descriptions that we see and that we've explored over these last number of weeks. No. That will only happen if you come if you look to Jesus Christ. Friend, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. If you need it, there's final confirmation. We've seen a promise. We've seen a series of exhortations in this chapter. Now we have a confirmation of what happens at the end. A warning. Verse 18, 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from them the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. What do we have here? A final appeal. A final warning. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore God's word. Don't ignore the book of Revelation. No book is like this book. If you deny the close of the canon, if you deny this word is the final word, then you deny the blessings that are available through it. You see, God's word is holy. It is distinguished from all merely human words. And one of the great challenges that we have is that human authority takes the word and interprets it according to its own, his or her own delight. And this is one of the real challenges that we face. We need to go back to the scriptures and to derive our theology, not out of psychology, not out of worldly wisdom, not out of uh, desires for superiority or whatever else, we need to go and examine the scriptures for themselves and make sure that what we are doing and what we are saying is being influenced primarily by what comes out of scripture and what is the general teaching of scripture. Not pulling things out of context. This is what cults do, right? The, the Mormons pull a, a text in Corinthians. It's got 30 different interpretations. And basically, on the basis of that, they baptize the dead. They take these obscure things and, and, and they build a whole theology about it. And then they add additional books. This is exactly what the scriptures are warning against. Jezebel and the false teachers earlier in uh, Revelation, that Jezebel in Revelation 2, 14 to 15 and 2, 20, they claim to be Christians, but they distort the truth. And such... Tampering is something that we've seen throughout church history, from the rise of Islam to the rise of Mormonism, to all kinds of things in between. All kinds of false gospels and false additions are there. It's all kinds of claims of, of, of angelic revelation that trump what's there in the scriptures. But the basic thing is clear here. We're not to worship angels or angelic revelations. We're to worship God as he has revealed himself in his word to his witnesses, preeminently Jesus Christ, preeminently his apostles, but us too in the way that we believe and practice this ourselves. You see, we have to take all of God's word. We have to believe it all. We can't just choose what we want. The American founding father, Thomas Jefferson, um, when he was 77 years old, decided that he was going to edit the Bible. Um, Jefferson had a number of uh, sinful proclivities and desires. And so one of the things he did was he took out basically everything in the Bible that he didn't like. So he did a literal cut and paste job. He didn't have Microsoft Word, but he might as well had it. He cut and pasted it and he cut out anything supernatural. Uh, he cut out all of Jesus's miracles. And uh, he actually even had the temerity to describe his, his, uh, his actions as pulling diamonds out of the dunghills of the Gospels. I mean, it's unbelievable. And the things that he kept were just sort of general principles. And in, in fact, these principles are underlying uh, the American uh, uh, governance today because every new member of Congress is given a Jeffersonian Bible. That is one with everything supernatural and anything really to do with, with God and his, his work out of it. And it's all just moral standards. You can't do that. You can't do that. You have to see the fullness of God's revelation. You may not add or remove things from this book because the, the consequences are serious. You'll be banished from heaven you'll be banished to hell for distorting the truth of God's word. So the final warning, 
But again, there's a final wonderful confirmation. All that's left in verse 20 is the prayer. He who comes to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This in the Aramaic is Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry of the saint who recognizes that all of their life, everything that is is going on in their life is coming to a fullness and to an end in Christ Jesus. And so the things and the temptations and the, 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 the things of this world are nothing in comparison to this. Right? Jesus tells the parable where there are people that have all kinds of excuses. They're getting married. They've got to go bury their father. Everything else is more important. But the true Christian who understands the glory and the wonder and the joy and the transport and the surpassing greatness of the purity, the newness, the beauty, the wonder, the overwhelming presence of God, there is no other response when we hear that described but to say, come, Lord Jesus. And in case you've forgotten, this is the picture of heaven with him. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the land, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider our place here, Lord, we do not deserve the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. But we look not at our sin, but to our Savior. And in looking at him and seeing the forgiveness, seeing how he suffered so that we can endure, how, Lord, we wait and we cry out, how long, O Lord? How long until there is ultimate justice? How long until the curse is reversed? How long until there are no more tears? So, Lord, we cry, come, Lord Jesus, work in us. Give us, Lord, a hunger and a thirst for living water so that, Lord, we live our lives in concert and in the direction that you would have us, which is to glorify, to enjoy, and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.